Morning, Illuminate. Morning. Good to be with you all. You survived the storm last night. I was just praying to God, please let there be a roof on our building. <laughs> Have an open air meeting, right? Um, like Pastor Hudson said, if you are with us for the first time, welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the staff here. If you've got a couple minutes right after the service, I would love to have the opportunity to meet you. I'll be right down here on this side of the stage right afterwards. So if you've been around the last several months, you know that we've been working our way through this amazing ancient text located directly at the very beginning of our Bibles titled Genesis. We've been discovering how it relates to modern times, to our modern lives. We've been focusing on the life of this man, Jacob. What we've seen is that the guy's been living up to his name. His name literally means deceiver or manipulator. Actually, most literally, the name means heel grabber. Heel grabber. You see, he's been living up to his reputation, his namesake, even before he was born. We read about how he's a twin. His older brother, Jacob, he arrives in the world first but not without his younger brother grabbing a hold of his heel as if to say, you won't be firstborn, I will be. And for decades, this is how he lives his life in this constant state of self-centeredness, always trying to manipulate the situation to get what he wants. But what happens when you get what you want and it's not what you thought it would be? Later, he deceives his aging father, takes advantage of his failing eyesight, tricks him into giving the family blessing to him and passing over his older brother Esau. And what happens is the older brother finds out he's out of his mind with rage. He won't be satisfied until he murders his brother. Mom finds out and says, Jacob, it's gonna be bad for you. Brother's really angry at what you did, even though it was mom and son's plan together. It kind of backfired, didn't exactly work out the way they thought. She says, you need to leave or he's going to kill you. Go to your uncle's land and find a wife for yourself there. Now, this is about a 450, 500 mile journey away from home. We read about how he's at an absolute low point in his life. He's homeless. He has nothing. Somewhere along the journey, he's tired. Doesn't even have a pillow to put his head down on. He grabs a rock. <sighs> he falls asleep and he begins to dream and God gives him this incredible vision. There's a stairway that stretches from earth to heaven and there's angels moving up and down this stairway. And then at the top of the stairway, there's God and he's directing the flow of traffic. But then God says something to Jacob, this guy who is, self-centered, undeserving. See, that's what really, that's what God's grace is all about. Grace is unmerited favor. So God meets him at this low point and he says, here's what I want you to know, I'm with you. In fact, the promises I made to your grandfather and father, I'm now giving to you. You're gonna have a family. You're gonna have land. In fact, you're gonna have so many ancestors, you won't be able to count them. And then, you know, one is going to come forth from you who will end up being a blessing to every family on earth. So this is huge news. At his lowest point, God meets him. It's exactly what he needs. And so after this encounter, he's feeling a bit lighter. In fact, the text literally indicates this. I'll show you Genesis chapter 29. 
Verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. So this is in the area of modern-day southeast Turkey. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. So the, the stone on the well's mouth was large. That'll become important in a bit. You'll see why. Verse 3, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well. They would water the sheep. They'd put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So see that first phrase in, chapter, uh, in verse 1, then Jacob went on his journey. The literal, literal translation of that is this. His feet were light. In other words, there was something about this interaction that God had with him. All of a sudden, his spirits are lifted. He goes from depression to hopefulness, right? And he sets out on his journey. He's got some confidence that like God is with me. I've got these incredible promises. And uh, things seem to be going really, really well. Things will change for him, though. And it begins as he approaches this land and he sees these three flocks of sheep. There's this well with a big stone covering it. And interestingly, he's noticing that this might be the place where he actually wants to be, his final destination. Perhaps in his mind, he's recalling the story of his own mom and dad here he is, he sees this well, and he remembers that his mom and dad actually met at a well, Isaac and, and Rebecca. And wouldn't it be interesting if that happened to him as well? So maybe there's something to this. If this is what he's thinking, he, he's, he's actually not wrong. Verse four, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, well, maybe, Haran, that is the land of my uncle. Do you actually know my uncle? His name is Laban. He's the son of Nahor. They said, we do know him. He said to them, how's he doing? Is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, he has a daughter, Rachel. She's actually headed this way with her own flock. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And then the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So, right, there's no Google maps back in the day. There's no big signpost on the side of the road. How does he know that he's in the right area? He senses that he is. He throws it out there. Hey, do you know Laban? Because my uncle Laban lives in the area of Haran, and ultimately that's where I'm headed. And they say, yeah, not only do we know him, but here comes his daughter. Because you see, she's, a, she's actually a shepherdess. She's got her own flock. He's happy to hear that Laban is alive. But he's also got some advice for these shepherds. He says, um, why don't you go ahead and water your sheep before the rest of the animals get here? you can have the well to yourself. And they respond by saying, well, no, that's actually not how we do it. We wait, wait till all the animals arrive and, and then we water them. And this makes sense from what we know from a historical context. These wells were covered with large stones to keep contaminants out, to keep animals from falling in. And, and so he's like, hey, why don't you just water them now and then you can lead them to pasture so they can continue to get big and grow and it'll, it'll be better for them. And they say, no, that's not actually how we do it. So he's engaged in this conversation with them. And as he's having this conversation, something's about to happen that changes his life forever. 
While he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and he rolls the stone from the well's mouth and he takes care of her flock, the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and he weeps and he cries aloud. And Jacob told Rachel, that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And, and, and she ran and told her father. So the text is kind of fun here because there's a little play on words. Rachel's name literally means little lamb. So here comes Rachel, here comes the little lamb and she is with her father's sheep. The little lamb is with her father's sheep. And Laban sees her and says, hey, let me, let me help. Now we got some single dudes in the room. <laughs> Pay attention to what he does. He flexes a little bit in front of this girl. Remember when I told you the stone was large? Typically it would take a couple dudes to move this thing out of the way. But all of a sudden this girl shows up and he does what? I got this. Now, let me take care of your flock. Meanwhile, the dudes are sitting at the corner of the gas and sip, you know what I'm saying? Just watching them do the work for this girl, you know? Either they're lazy or what, whatever. And then it gets more interesting because he reveals who he is and he kisses her and he says, I'm your cousin. I know, stop. I was about to say, you can insert your own joke there. I had a couple of really good one-liners, but I'm going to restrain myself and save myself the emails that I would get. It is what it is back in the day, okay? But what's interesting is the text tells us that he's super emotional because this is a grown man. And the text says he just sobs loudly. Why? Think about the guy's life. Have you ever been so low, so broken, just far from home, removed from everything? His whole life has been a lie, been a cheat, a manipulator, so much so that he's an outcast from the family has a personal encounter with God, God shows him grace. His heart begins to open up and now he can't believe it. He's at this well with this woman and as it's gonna turn out to be, he's absolutely smitten with her. It's a, uh, it's a really interesting thing that happens to us in life. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be. If you've ever for a moment thought, man, I thought my life would never be like this. I think pretty much every human that's ever lived has said that. Why do you think that is? Hey, maybe more to the point, why does God allow that to happen? 
We'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about that in a second. Um, it's big news to have a relative in town from so far. Rachel's stunned. And she runs away. She runs and tells her dad. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he runs out to meet him. He embraces him and he kisses him, brings him to his house. Jacob told Laban the whole story. What details he included, we don't exactly know. Laban said to him, surely you're my flesh and blood. And he stayed with him a month. And at this point, if you can imagine, there's a close-up. There's a close-up right on right on Laban's face. And it's a really joyful moment and there's got to be laughter and they're like, I can't believe this is crazy. You're here, so excited. And then immediately afterward, the smile on Laban's face disappears and it changes to a... something far more sinister. Jacob is about to meet his match in ways he could never expect. What he's dished out to so many people, he's about to receive. Jacob, like many of us, to a greater or lesser degree, lacks a certain amount of moral substance to his character. He needs some depth. He's got some really rough edges. He's reaping what he has sown. But you know, there's nothing better in life than pain and suffering and confrontation to smooth over the pride and the egotistical ways that we sometimes find ourselves living in. Verse 15, then Jacob said to Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? This dude's super crafty. Because essentially what he's saying is, hey, because you're here and we're related, eh, I don't expect you to work for me for nothing, but I do expect you to work. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Uh, Now for the ominous part. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now, what's interesting is that if you are an ancient Hebrew and you're reading this text back in the day, immediately immediately you're thinking, whoa, plot twist, because this is the story of Jacob and his brother Esau. Now we're getting another introduction to this older, younger relationship that's happening. Jacob defrauded his older brother. Now there's this new relationship that enters the scene between these two sisters. One is older, the other is younger. The stage is set for future conflict. Then we get a description of these two girls. Verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak. Now the word weak literally means tender. There are some commentators who believe that there's something wrong with her eyes. Maybe her eyesight was failing. I'm not so sure that's the case. I think that this simply describes the fact that she just had a different... Uh, disposition, a different appearance. There was something in her eyes that, that came across as being tender. Rachel was different. She had a different look to her. And, and her look was actually more appealing to Jacob because we read this, but Jacob was, or, but Rachel was beautiful in form 
and appearance. So the Bible doesn't often emphasize physical beauty. So when it does, you can imagine Rachel must have been absolutely stunning, not only in her physical uh, beauty, her form, but also in the way she presented herself, her appearance. So having said that, let me say this. Back in the day, standards of beauty were different than they are today. I'm going to try to say this very delicately, okay? (laughs) Be nice. So back in the day, they liked ladies that had a little bit more meat on their bones. You know what I'm saying? If you look at Renaissance paintings, what do the the women look like? They're, they're, They're a little bit more plump. And they're also pale, right? It had a little bit more girth. What other words can I find? Um, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? If you look at like the ancient statues carved of, of the women, yeah, you know, they, okay. It's certainly not uh, the, the sort of strung out supermodel look that is popularized by some today, okay? Because if you were pale, what that meant was you spent time indoors, you had a, a rather cushy life that said something about you. And if you, ha- if, if you had a, li- a little bit of you know, weight to you, what that meant was you, know, you were well-to-do. You weren't worried about where your next meal's coming from. So th- this, this all added to your, your physical beauty. What's interesting though, is that Rachel, she would have been dark. She's a shepherdess. She's spending a lot of time outdoors. So Jacob looks and he's like, I like this tan girl. She's beautiful. Verse 18, Jacob loved her. And not just a little, but like a lot. In fact, on his own deathbed later, we'll read one of the last thing he mourns is the loss of his wife who died before him. And so... Laban says, it's not right that you work for me and you work for me for nothing. Well, Jacob's like, I never said that I would. Uh, So name your wages. And so he's like, all right, let's do this. I will serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. This is twice the dowry price for a bride. Dowry price was usually three years worth of labor. He doubles it and adds a year, seven years. I mean, this guy's in love. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. He's like, at least you, I know. I don't know. I I don't want to give her to someone I don't know. Okay, deal. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Poetic, beautiful. Everything seems to be falling into place. It's so beautiful. He was down and out. Here's from God. Man, he he goes on this journey. Everything is coming. He's got this beautiful woman in his sights. Just, just, just listen. That's the sound of friction, right? Like the sound of maybe sandpaper smoothing over his rough edges because that's, a, that's exactly what's about to happen to this man. Here comes the pain. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Guy's super romantic. 
<laughs> and watch what happens next. Seems that Laban is holding that ace up his sleeve, but he's about to play it. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast, which is what you do. In marriage, it's kind of fun. Back in the day, you didn't just invite your family and friends. You invited the whole community. And what you would do is you'd read the marriage contract in front of everybody, and it would be celebrated. And part of the marriage contract involved the bride price or the dowry. So can you imagine? They're reading this contract. Yes, Jacob says he will work seven years for Rachel. And everybody's like, oh, he said seven years, seven years, seven years. Wow, beautiful, meant to be. The wine is flowing. Party actually lasts about a week. But it's what happens on the night of the first day that's really significant because that's when the marriage is consummated in the marriage tent. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob went into her. Then you get this parenthetical statement that'll, that'll be important in a bit. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. More on that in a bit. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you Jacobed me? Ow. In fact, the Hebrew word for deceive is the exact Hebrew word that's used to describe what Jacob did to his older brother. It's the unveiling of the bride during the ceremony. and Everything is just so amazing. And like I said, the wine is flowing and now it's consummation time. And they enter the tent. It's dark. the next morning <sighs> Laban what have you done to me what have you done to me? Nothing that you haven't done to others. Nothing that you haven't done to others, boy. He now understood the pain that he caused to others. And Laban's excuse is absolute salt to the wound. Verse 26, Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now we don't do a role reversal thing in our country, deceiver. You might know a little something about that. 
So complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh, don't be confused by the show Sister Wives. And he served Laban for another seven years. Essentially, Laban says to Jacob, we don't allow the younger to take the place of the older. <laughs> so since Leah is older, she should be married first. Sister wives, we'll keep the actual timeline the same another seven years. Jacob is grounded into submission. He's paying now more than four times the bride price for Rachel. Interesting how, how life changes quickly, isn't it? One week earlier, this dude is single. A week later, he has two wives. Lots of drama. Because, by the way, we'll, we'll talk about this, this consistent theme that you see through the Bible where dudes are marrying multiple wives. It was never God's plan. We'll talk more about that next week. This is where he finds himself. Because he loves Rachel more than Leah, the stage is set for more drama. But you know, once again, we see God ministering to those who are hurting. Remember that. All throughout our study so far, we see God showing up and speaking to the heart of the outcast, the despised, the unloved. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, why was she hated? Because she's a visible reminder to Jacob that Laban double-crossed him. God opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. <sighs> Interesting. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Right? She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now, now this time, which tells you that the other two times she wasn't successful. Now he'll love me. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Oh, man, you know, it's like we all want what we don't have. The grass is greener on the other side, and then you get the green grass, and then what are you doing with that green grass? I forgot I got to mow this. In fact, the greener the grass is, the more I have to take care of it. You get what you want, and it turns out not to be all that. Leah has what Rachel wants. She wants to be loved by her husband. Rachel wants what Leah wants, kids. They both have what the other wants. And you sense Leah's desperation, even in the way she names her kids. Reuben means a boy. Reuben's born, now finally, I've, I've given Jacob a boy. Now he'll love me but it doesn't quite happen. And so another child is born and, and his name is Simeon, which means reputation. Now I'll have a reputation. 
right? I've given birth to two boys. I've given Jacob two boys. Now I'll have a reputation. This will do it for me. No. She has a third child. Names him Levi. You know what the name Levi means? United. Now we'll be united. The last boy is named Judah, which means praise. And then with this, she gives direct praise to God. More conflict that follows, we'll see in the next chapter. So let's just say this for now. The chapter begins with this great sense of hopefulness and optimism, and it ends with anger, jealousy, bitterness, um, this extreme family dysfunction. What happened? What happened to this lightness of step that Jacob experienced after encountering, encountering God personally? Well, I just think it's, it's how life goes, right? Uh, for years, I used to tell people, life is like a roller coaster. It's filled with highs and lows, ups and downs. One minute you're at the top, the next minute you're at the bottom. Great highs and great valleys. That's how, just how life is. I don't tell people that anymore. I'm old enough to understand now. It's, it's more like this. Life is like two rails of a track. One is labeled joy. The other is labeled sorrow. And they run simultaneously through your whole life. You will always have some measure of joy and some measure of heartache in your life, your entire life. Why is that? Well, I think it's to show you that God is both sovereign and uh, gracious. Jacob may have thought, God, where are you? You were near and now everything's a mess. What God is doing in the background is this. a little friction, a little sandpaper saying, Jacob, could it be that Laban is in your life to show you who you really are? Oh. Chances are you have a Laban in your life. You have some relationship that is there as a mirror reflecting back to you the things that you don't like, but you don't see it in yourself. Isn't it funny? The things that offend us the most are very often the things that we are most guilty of. You say, I, I just can't stand people that talk about themselves all the time. I really, you know what my, you know what my pet peeve is? You really wanna push my button? Be rude. It's cool because the Bible says that God works through all things, every circumstance, every single relationship in your life, God works through. And God always works through those relationships to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, because that's where life's greatest blessings lie. So Jacob has this really special place in God's future work. At the same time, he's not immune from the bad decisions he personally makes, but God works through that and through those around him. How is God working in all of your relationships? So now maybe you have a new lens to view those difficult people in your life. So what's really cool about the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, we've been saying this all along, it all points forward to Jesus because there's this one promise that's made to Jacob 
It's when God says to Jacob, through you, every family on earth is going to be blessed. Well, what we know is that Jesus is a descendant of Jacob. And what Jesus did on the cross was a blessing to every person on the planet. See, the Bible is true in what it says. Jacob, I will make you a great nation. You'll have countless offspring. Well, God is at work behind the scenes. Jacob couldn't see it in the moment, but from these two women, essentially, there, there will be 12 sons, and each one of these sons will be a leader of a tribe that will become the nation of Israel. In a bit, we're going to see Jacob get his name changed to Israel. God said, I'll be with you. I will make you a nation. I've joked with you about this before. The Israelites are still with us today, right? But when's the last time you had lunch with a Hittite, an Amorite, a Jebusite? Those ethnicities have come and gone, but the Israelites are with us today. They all existed at the same time. Why are the Israelites still here? Because God said they would be, that's why. God keeps his promises. So when he says, I'm gonna send forth one from the line of Jacob that will be a blessing to every family on the earth, the Bible's no joke. You got to start taking it seriously. Everything in Genesis points forward to Jesus. So a dying man's words are among his most important. So what happens is, is Jesus is sharing his last meal, just about to be crucified. He tells his followers, I need you to do this. Of all the things that I've said, that I've taught, I need you to remember one thing. What is it, Jesus? What is it? Do you remember your teaching about, about uh, what it means to be blessed in the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like? Man, that Sermon on the Mount, that was the greatest sermon ever preached. No, not that. Here's what you need to be left with. Remember my death. Because through my death, you will be saved. Jesus utters, to tell us die on the cross, it is finished. The work that God began in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 when man fell, saying, I got to develop a rescue plan. It's going to come from the seed of a woman, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The New Testament opens up and says, bam, let me tell you about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He fits. So this is something that Christians have been doing since the time of Jesus. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And essentially what it is, is it's a time to re reflect and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. The Apostle Paul, now I know a little bit of movement right now, but let me just get you back. The Apostle Paul says to use this time in a worthy manner. He also goes on to say that some people kind of act like they trample on the blood of Christ. That's a big mistake. It cost Jesus his life, so we treat it as something precious. So as we enter into this time, you know, our prayer is simple, that the Spirit of God would speak to each one of us, specifically in light of the text, through maybe some of those uh, Laban-type relationships that we have. Father, once again, such good words from your book. We're grateful. God, we all come with different um, points of baggage, and uh, at the foot of the cross, we're all there exposed as sinners in need of a Savior. We've all done something to put Jesus on the cross. As we grow in our faith, we come to realize the things that we've given ourselves to, they don't square with your commands. It's our good. But when we come into alignment with the goodness of your words, we experience the life that we were created to live. 
Sometimes it's hard because we have to leave some decisions behind and maybe even some relationships. But God, in the end, what we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is real. Heaven is real. This is not a dress rehearsal. We pray, Father, as we enter into this time that your spirit would reveal what's happening in our lives through all these relationships that we have. God, use them for our blessing and ultimately for your glory. As we enter into this time, may your spirit lead us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.